Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Matthew Chute. I'm Chute Chi. And I'm coming to you now as the Climate Buddha. Today is August 24th, I believe, 2019. It's a Sunday. And if some of you listened to my previous podcast, you'll remember that I mentioned that I was going to be talking to Harold Hensel. Harold Hensel and I are citizen journalists. We were both moved by the climate change uh, issues uh, as enunciated by the abrupt climate change community at the time. And he and I became friends on Facebook years ago. I would like to have an exact date for this podcast. Perhaps I'll put it in the comments, but it was probably four or five years ago. He's been a friend of mine on Facebook, and I've been following his Facebook feed as a friend for all that time, and very, very, very rarely does he post anything that I'm not in complete agreement with. Harold Hansel also happens to have one of the most beautiful families that you could possibly imagine, and if you go to his Facebook feed, you'll see pics and pics of his striking, beautiful family and his time that he is spending with his wonderful wife, Mary, with that family. Harold, my first question to you is, is, is your family aware of the things that you and I are about to talk about? Uh, some of them are. Some of them are not. And uh, my grandson, Blake, is aware because I've uh, been getting him in the office and briefing him. And I also took him to the Iowa State um, Research Center for Biochar and um, got it. I went through their um, research farm and it was just amazing. Um, it was quite an experience for him and now he's interested. So, um, but the rest of them, well, they're not as into it as I am. Well, we do carry with us. We do carry with us some pretty powerful information, and uh, there has been some discussion on my side with my friends and network uh, of people about the the rightness of telling people that our time is numbered, our days are numbered, and that the climate is just that bad. And that message, I've had some people say to me, "No, don't don't tell people." You know, what's your feeling on that, Harold? Well, um, it's kind of like going to the doctor and they, he has a diagnosis of cancer. Is he, should he tell you or not tell you? And I'm for telling it. Myself. I want to know what I'm up against. Myself as and well. So I think it's, I think it's our obligation to tell people. I think it's an obligation to tell people in that we, just because of our karma, luck, situation, background, circumstances, have come to these conclusions that we are a small minority right now. But I coined the term universal alignment for the time when everybody will agree that we're in deep climatological problem because they'll be able to determine that by looking out the window. I think that'll be the great unifying thing for humanity when all of humanity looks out the window and realizes beyond any shadow of a doubt that we're not talking about a theoretical construct of scientific projections but something that's happening now. Unfortunately, and if one goes to Harold Hansel's Facebook feed, you'll see a subject matter that appears to be very close to your heart, Harold, and I would like you to talk about the worldwide fire situation. Oh, yeah. That, that's amazing. I've been on this fire kick for a long time, and now it's just getting so bad that uh, the rest of the world is trying, finally waking up to the fact that we've, we've got a problem with fires. And um, the, the old philosophy used to be, let it burn. And we cannot afford that philosophy anymore. We've got to get these fires out. There's too much methane is going in the atmosphere, too much pollution, too much, uh, too many forests are being uh, burned up, and 
they're not having a chance to come back. And uh, it's just uh, intruding on us every day. Um, so I, I'm in for getting at least a thousand uh, super tankers uh, through the U.S. military, possibly the Air Force, to get it, get on these fires and put them out. And uh, we need to have this as a commitment. Um, we have um, an order in right now for 2,000 F-35 fighter planes for a total budget of $1 trillion. 500 million and none of them will put out a fire well and well put we need, we need something we we need to have a, a, a equipment that will put out these fires otherwise we're just going to be um, overwhelmed by them the listeners may not be aware of the super tanker concept, but there are planes that are converted 747s, I believe, which are tremendous firefighting machines, airborne firefighting machines, and Harold's number of 2,000 of these is probably uh, just about right for tackling the continental fires that are currently going on. There is simply no continent in the world today as of 2019 that currently does not have an extensive fire problem what is making the news right now is the fires in in uh, the amazon but this is such a microcosm there's fires in indonesia there's fires in australia there's fires in alaska the canadian wilderness siberian fires are tremendous the, the siberian fires the square miles that are engulfed in flames in Siberia right now at this time were so extensive that the Russian leadership was saying it was impossible to fight. And the possibility of fighting these fires involves a technological solution which Harold is discussing which is a fleet of flying uh, super tanker airplanes that can tackle the kind of square miles that are engulfed right now and unfortunately, I just have to say that although that is the proper pro policy, it should have been implemented 10 years ago and have those tankers ready for this eventuality. What do you think it is with the human condition that makes it hard for us to plan for the future? Yeah, we, it's hard for people to grasp the enormity of the problem. And uh, they just want to go about their daily business and, and not worry about it, hoping it will go away. Well, it's not going to go away, and i um, going to be faced with it sooner or later. But um, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's part of our natural uh, defense system, too. If, um, if you met a bear on a trail, uh, your nice your natural defense system would would go into effect you would run or fight or uh, climb a tree or do something um, but when somebody is confronted with a with a abstract theory basically in their mind that we're in grave danger they don't get it it's not wired for it so um, we're not as advanced um, civilizations, you might think. Um, people are still living on a much lower level than what they need to be. I believe that you are a, uh, a helping professional of some sort. Are you in the mental health field or something along those lines? Yeah, I was a counseling psychologist for six years. Well, that's a fantastic and, um, profession to see the darkness of man, but also to really confront our limitations. And uh, it's uh, it's truly frightening that these, uh, well, I, I use the term, you know, primate monkey brains. Uh, we have nuclear weapons, and we have not the capacity to plan uh, ahead uh, for uh, future disasters, just as you said, that we're just not wired right for that, that our, our brains are adapted for some historic series of tasks 
that is not relevant to what is going on today. And this, this problem right. of the limitations of human uh, intellectual capacity as a whole, not so much as a specialization, as a whole is a massive problem on, on so many levels, both politically and uh, climatologically and other planning as well. I happen to be uh, not a big fan of, of, of voting for uh, the equivalent of uh, silverback gorillas. We are a, a species that has typically had a silverback leader and many followers and this small tribal unit as hunter and gatherers you know uh, set into motion all of the worship of the of the silverback gorilla in all its forms today which uh, the top of the heap is uh, money earners but, but, but we still have um Oh boy, let's see if I turn this back on. Harold, I'm just having a little Powering bit of... on. There you go. Ready to pair. Paired. We just had a, uh, an, a, 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 a sound problem. Can you hear me, Harold? Yeah, I got you. Okay. All right. So, you know, the basic issue is, is, is we've got this silverback gorilla problem and we organize ourselves, you know, with deep concentrations of power as a result of this. You may or may not be aware, but I have hashtag distribute power which is asking the question is, is, has this system protected us? Has concentrations of power at the level that we currently have, has that protected us or has that imperiled us? What's your thoughts on that? Well, they haven't protected us. They're causing it almost. They're, um, they're working against us even. So um, the um, people in power are are four other people in power and they're just not um, coming to terms with uh, um, climate change at all. Uh, things are getting better though. Um, it, climate change has to come out of the abstract and theoretical and get into people's personal experience. And this is happening now. And um, I, I'll never forget that one interview that a, that a, a reporter was doing down in Joplin, Missouri. And they were standing in front of just a cement slab where, where this guy's house used to be. And um, uh, the reporter asked him if he thought this had anything to do with climate change. And uh, the guy says, I believe it is. <laughs> and uh, I'm, you know, so he's, he's uh, trying to realize, you know, with personal experience that uh, climate change is a problem. Well, unfortunately, and, um, this, this realization process uh, is, is, is the tragedy of, of this situation is that we all know that once we're seeing it out the window, that's a good indication that it's probably too late to fix it. But with that... Yeah, that's true. With that thought, though, I haven't given up. And uh, I would like you to uh, inform the listeners about biochar. Uh, there are a number of agricultural okay. models that do exist to offset the problems of uh, carbon capture and... And one of them is something called biochar, and I do know that Harold's been supporting that for a while, so please tell us about that. Okay, well, first of all, biochar is biomass uh, turned into charcoal through the process of pyrolysis. Okay, that's where biochar comes from, just an abbreviation of biomass and charcoal. And... Um, the, the um, biomass um, um, can, uh, uh, through um, the, the process of pyrolysis, is, is, is what it does is it heats biomass in a low oxygen um, container, and it turns it into biochar. It's, it looks just like charcoal but it hasn't been burned. There's nutrients still left in the biochar. And um, microbes do not eat 
um, biochar. They live in it. And the kind of bio, uh, microbes that live in biochar, if you uh, activate it and put it in the soil like fertilizer, they start eating the um, nutri- uh, biomass in the soil and making nutrients available to the roots of plants. This increases uh, production. And, um, and then the, um, the increased production of the uh, growth of uh, like crops and things uh, helps reduce, you know, take up the carbon dioxide. And um, also with uh, they give it to put it in tree round trees and and um, they're using it for building materials. Um, but what it does is it displaces um, it takes the it takes the biomass out of the um, carbon cycle. Now that biomass would have gone back into the uh, carbon cycle and produced um, carbon dioxide um, in the atmosphere. You take it out of the carbon cycle and you reduce the amount of CO2 going in the air and uh, in the atmosphere. That's called displacement. And um, and then when when you take the biochar and make it into a fertilizer, you bury it. You're sequestering that carbon instead of it going back into the the atmosphere. So um, if, if we had enough biochar over enough land, spread over enough land, it would make um, it could possibly bring carbon dioxide and methane back into normal uh, uh, normal uh, numbers. Biochar um, is also used for building materials. Uh, it can be used uh, instead of oil uh, for asphalt. Can you imagine how much um, carbon that would sequester for on all the roads? And uh, it, it can the oil can be used to um, run uh, <laughs> um, machines, and uh, it also produces uh, gas. So, um, bio, uh, biofuels. So there's a lot of uses for uh, biochar. It can be used for um, lumber, for insul- insulation, and um, there's 55 uses of biochar right now. So um, it also um, is a business opportunity right now. You can make money doing it, and that's a key factor uh, to produce biochar and sell it. Um, <laughs> excuse me. That will bring down the, the uh, carbon in the atmosphere. And also um, biochar, the microbes in biochar in the soil eat methane. A lot of methane is coming from the soil. And if um, if you can stop the methane from the soil, that reduces the amount of methane going in the atmosphere uh, by a great deal. What's happened is that the increased heat has um, gone deeper in the soil, and it's activated more microbes, and uh, so they're producing more um, methane. I was unaware of biochar's uh, diversity. Thank you so much for that introduction of this product. And it does sound like it was, it is a an alternative to agricultural fertilizer, a potential. uh, It sounds like a potential, uh, you know, uh, magic key for a number of different technologies that are currently carbon intensive and not carbon sequestering. Uh, if if implementation on a worldwide basis occurred of, of biochar, what do you think the carbon cost would be of implementation? I mean, is are, are the 
uh, costs of creating the biochar machines? Uh, is there a high carbon cost for that? Is there a carbon cost to actually manufacture that? Is there a net carbon reduction from the production of, of, of biochar? A net um, <clears throat> reduction of carbon from production, yeah, at least 50%. Wow. And um, and so that um, other countries are catching on to this, too, more so than the United States. Um, China has caught on to it. They're building 200 biochar uh, production units, and they're putting them in place right now and besides uh reducing the you know cleaning up the atmosphere uh they're using it to combat poverty because um they're in um in um food insecure areas in china and these farmers can use biochar and increase their production sometimes from all the way from 12% to 50%. So when you can, in some cases, it's even 100%. So if you can take um, biochar and double your income from uh, selling your agricultural products, uh, that's going to offset the cost of, um, of uh, producing biochar. Sounds like an excellent uh, solution to the, the conundrums uh, involving fertilizer and the inability to keep soil living in current industrial uh, uh, agricultural models. The uh, secondary gains that I'm hearing about using this as a structural material and insulation and such, it sounds a little bit like hemp has a little bit of a universal application type of thing. Are you familiar with uh, some of the other agricultural ideas that are designed to improve uh, the the climate. Well, yeah, the um, some other agricultural ideas. Like, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, right now there's been quite a bit of talk about a vegan uh, lifestyle as having the least amount of a carbon. Oh, I, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm a vegan, and um, do we? Do, um, if we there's two things that we can do right now that would really make a difference immediately and it's within our control and one of them is um, eating lower on the food chain as Dr. James Hampton would say um, lower on the food chain away, yeah look, eat lower on the food chain don't eat meat eat plant based uh, protein and um, and and get away from the high cost to the environment of producing cattle and hogs, and um, and that that will help us. That the agricultural things I've heard estimates all all the way from 25 percent to to 50 percent of our um, our methane uh, production going into the atmosphere. If we, if we could cut off eating meat, that would be one thing that would really reduce um, the methane going in the atmosphere. The second thing that we can do is get these fires put out. All of this is within our control. And um, we need to do those as soon as possible. And um, and those are those two things right there would be like fifty to sixty percent of our problem with climate change. And um, and then you throw in biochar, which will help reduce the uh, remove actually remove uh, carbon from the atmosphere that's already there. Um, that that will help. Of course, all the prevention things that that you're, everybody's familiar with uh, need to be done too, but, like solar and wind for our energy. Well, there, there um, really is kind I, of a climate plan that came out of uh, both your work with biochar and uh, Sam Karana's work online. He has a 
Climate Action Plan. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Guy McPherson's uh, non-plan plan because he believes that uh, it's just too late and that we're faced with an existential crisis of trying to deal with a population under climatological stress. And this is part of the near-term human extinction movement. And what's your feeling on, on that direction? And this would be an opportunity you to weighed in on any of the folks that you've met in the past? Well, I'm, I'm not really in that camp. Um, even if they're right, I'm still not in their camp. Um, because um, I think that uh, reduces our efforts to combat climate change and do everything we can. Although McPherson has never, ever that we should not do everything we can to uh, get ourselves out of this predicament. Um, but I'm, I'm going for... Powering off. Powering on. Ready to pair. Paired. Uh, I think this is our moral obligation. You said you mentioned my beautiful family. I don't want my beautiful family... Um, going to die from a heat stroke or even burn to death from climate change. And um, so uh, I feel like it's our moral obligation to go full blast on, on getting every, doing everything we can to combat climate change and um, to sit back and say, well, we're done for anyway. Um, I'm, I don't, I don't go along with that. Well, I have a difficult time with the, with this conundrum as well, too, because what we are talking about is keeping people motivated, keeping people trying, and there's like a political side to, uh, being a climate change activist in that your information has, has a secondary effect to the motivations of others, and will they use this information properly to, you know, to benefit others in their actions. Uh, we've had about, I think the number's 250 shootings in the last year and a half. Um, I know that we have a phenomenally well-entrenched Second Amendment movement for the ownership and personal ownership of weaponry. My question is, do you, do you think that, the, that uh, abrupt climate change and the consequences of what's going to happen to civilization and the environment in general do you think that, that a degradation of society, reduction of civilization's control through climate change, do you think that these circumstances, which certainly are somewhere in our future, do you think those circumstances would be benefited from additional guns, or do you think that we should do something about the amount of guns? Oh, dear. Well, the... Other countries have the same um, mental problems as we do, only they have about one-tenth or less of the killings by weapons and because they don't have weapons like a mass destruction. They're illegal in Canada. Um, they were illegal here uh, until they repealed it. And... Um, and the NRA is running away with this thing, and manu gun manufacturers and ammunition manufacturers. And um, I don't think we should be subservient to these guys. Um, and we have the right to restrict the use of those weapons. Um, you can own a gun, but you certainly can't be restricted from killing people with them. And um, so they restrictions are in place and I think they need to be um, included uh, more restrictions on having military weapons out on the streets um, there there are people who who shouldn't even own a shotgun you went out hunting with them um, they're so irresponsible they're killing other hunters and uh, killing themselves when they're going over fences. And so there's too many irresponsible people 
to uh, trust um, military weapons to out in the public. And uh, and there is no reason for an AK-47 out on the streets. Um, none. I, I see this problem in the same framing and again keeping people motivated within the context of the climate change movement based on the information that we're aware of that our days have a limit that there's only so much stress civilization can take from the climate before it starts to break down and there's only so much stress that the that our agricultural communities can take from the climate before they no longer produce these factors appear to be locked in and that as the numbers go up over the over the years and we see this worldwide increase of, of temperature uh, from industrial baseline getting hotter and hotter and everything burning and drying out and getting hotter it just looks more obvious to me that the existential question about what are we going to do with the human condition during the destruction of our agricultural and civilizations is you know is, is just a valid question as whether or not we should be offsetting carbon usage and trying to uh, uh, you know reduce the overall amount of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere period it just looks like that that kind of existential question about what should humanity do with itself during this time of stress my answer is like yours is do we need a fully armed populace do we need a fully armed government monitoring that populace and I think one of the issues within the, the gun community that has not been discussed that I've been willing to broach is just what the heck is our government doing with the weapons that they have already that almost every single agency has its own cache of weapons you may or may not be aware of that the police departments yeah. are have tremendous amounts of firepower that are all directed at the people of the United States and a question that has not yeah. not been asked is just how many weapons are pointed at the people of the United States by the people of the United States. And I think every country has yeah. to ask that question and wonder just how many weapons a government needs to monitor and control its population. And in our country, the number is ridiculous. There's like a, a million bullets per citizen. And just in the governmental yeah. lock boxes of you know weaponry, yeah. so you know we could kill each individual citizen in the United States a million times with the current level of weapons. Do we need more? And will this actually protect us during a period of universal alignment when civilization is is starting to be rocked by the reality of climate change? But the uh, the the next question I have for you is is back on this time issue. Um. I believe that you're aware that society and everybody needs to be making some change from where we are now to someplace else that either has a lower carbon footprint, an increased degree of safety, some sort of planning that does not maintain business as usual. And that transition right there and how that transition is occurring, when is a good time to do that? Oh boy, that well, it's happening right now. There's climate migration. Um, it, uh, there's a lot of climate uh, migration um, along the China coast. They've had so many hurricanes or typhoons over there that people are moving away from the coast. Um, of course, the places like Bangladesh and uh, even India, um, the Sahara Desert uh, is moving south. Those people are, are migrating. And um, there um, people in Guatemala, um, some of those countries down there, the, <clears throat> the big migration is uh, um, away, away from, uh, from climate change. There's a, there's a strip through Guatemala that hasn't had rain for three years. And if you were a father of or three children and you couldn't feed them, um, what are you going to do? You're going to pick up and move is what you're, you're going to do. Yeah. yeah, you're going to pick up and move. Yeah. And you're going to go wherever you can provide for your family. And so, uh, but there's there's really, um, 
no place on Earth that is going to be a safe place from climate change. Um, I'll tell you why. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, if you read uh, Dr. Hansen's um, book on uh, stocks of my grandchildren, um, you'll see that um, he is kind of a proponent of the Venus effect. Yes. And uh, he, he studied Venus in, under Van Allen in Iowa State, or University of Iowa Astronomy Department. That was his assignment, to study the, the greenhouse gas condition on Venus. And, um, and so um, Venus went to um, 875 degrees. And um, so he decided, well, we better focus on the Earth. So then um, he, you know, discovered that we've got a big greenhouse gas uh, problem, and he testified in front of Congress in 1988 that we have a problem. Um, nothing has gone, you know, um, nobody listened to him. But anyway, uh, when this, when the runaway um, climate change stars um, in being fed so fast and that um, uh, and, and with so much pollution there, there's no precedent for it and when the runaway uh, climate change happens it'll it's my estimation it'll just keep going and uh, Earth will go to a Venus type atmosphere uh, planet, there'll be a rock, rocky planet, um, 800 degrees, you know, possibly, even if it was 400 degrees, it wouldn't make much difference. No, we won't so, be, we won't be seeing um, that, and I don't think that the, uh, the tunnels underneath our, our world that have been built for various reasons are going to be safe either. I think we're, we are headed for a, a, a massive calamity, and the direction of Venus and the runaway aspect, I think a, a recent uh, study that uh, Guy McPherson was talking about said that we may be turning into more of a Mars atmosphere because of my next subject matter. This is a subject matter yeah. that I have some history with. My brother was uh, intimately involved in the protest movement in New England against the building of various nuclear power plants. So at a young age, uh -huh. I had my first introduction to citizen direct action and citizen-based um, decision-making as my brother, you know, described the problems with, with nuclear power. I happen to be a fan of Helen Caldicott, and uh, Dr. Caldicott has had a number of uh, YouTubes, one of them with Guy McPherson, and she has in no uncertain terms, you know, uh, called out the nuclear power industry in general as being a, uh, uh, an ecocide creating nightmare. What's your feeling on the nuclear power industry? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, there are some solutions to that if we can ever get to it. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the light water reactors use uh, plutonium, and they only use about 5% of the actual energy that's in a plutonium bar. And, um, and so then they have to store it for 300,000 years. <laughs> um, so um, if we ever got a fusion um, reactor, they would be able to use all those plutonium bars from all these plutonium uh, nuclear sites um, for fuel. And um, uh, no more uranium would have to be um, found. And um, the, um, the fusion reactors put out oh, almost so small amount of radiation that um, they would 
it's almost negligible. And uh, and then we would have uh, power the same as the sun. Um, but the pro- problem is you still have to transport these bars and, uh, and get them to the um, fusion reactors. Plus, the fusion reactors so far, um, level five, they call it, uh, fusion reactors, um, they're, they're not putting out as much energy as they had hoped. So um, if they could solve, um, they got it solved theoretically, but in practice they can't get it done. And, uh, and so there's, uh, there's uh, probably a small um, possibility that they could get anything going soon enough to uh, solve our energy problem. And, and get rid of these um, plutonium bars that are little sticks of... Thank you. Thank you, Harold, for pointing out what is a good possible solution. My son is an engineer, graduated, and he's working for General Dynamics Powering right on. now. And, um... Hold on a sec. Powering on. Ready mm. to pair. Paired. My son is a uh, engineer, and he was uh, very interested in, in uh, fusion uh, power as a as a growth industry for an engineer who is entering the uh, the engineering market. And uh, the research that I did trying to help him find his career was just as you said: is that the technological hurdles for fusion are many, and uh, theoretical solutions exist, but building them and figuring out how to you know get the technology just right isn't quite there yet. So as a result, the, one of the consequences of the collapse of civilization and the inability to maintain the nuclear power plants that exist in, you know, everywhere uh, would be the re- re- releasing of the ionization uh, uh, radiation into the atmosphere, which they believe is going to change the atmosphere and head us more towards Mars than it would be towards Venus. All of this isn't good news. And all of this, uh-huh. in, all of this in association with even uh, if we if we manage to get through the next twenty years with nothing more than uh, sea level rise, and if if somehow we were able to offset the worldwide temperature increases and that climate stabilized at wherever it is right around now, and uh, the sea level just continued to rise as expected, we would have. Uh, literally hundreds of nuclear power generating stations with waves of the ocean lapping up on their front door. And knowing, uh-huh. knowing what I do know about nuclear power is that uh, it's pretty hard to shut these things off and that to decommission a nuclear yeah. power plant, pack up its stuff and move yeah. it somewhere else is one heck of a project. That's something I think we should be doing now. I think that's that's what we should be doing now. Yeah. Is every uh, sea level... Um, Nuclear power plant needs to be shut down and moved, um, as we have to protect yeah. future generations from these things. And uh, it's it's an unfortunate series of monkey well, brain decisions that uh, thinking out the long term consequences of a thirty thousand year fuel that you can't get near. If I gave everyone in the my local community a little piece of that uh, plutonium and they put it in their jar in their kitchen, they would all die. This is very toxic stuff. Uh-huh. So. So we've yeah. we've created some serious poisons and uh, trying to figure out a solution to that in association with climate change, in association with all the political problems and the fact that we have a lot of guns, you can see why a lot of people, and Harold, this next question is directed towards you and your family, we've seen a lot of people who have a very difficult time facing the emotional consequences of all of these horrible solutions that don't look good. Every problem the solution to it doesn't look good. And after a while, as an activist, as a citizen journalist, as someone who cares about humanity as a whole, you get beaten down. And you say, oh, another, you mean to tell me we're going to be dealing with melting down nuclear reactors and climate change? Is that possible? And you're like, well, yeah, it's possible. You know, uh, I mean, if there's no food in New England, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are hungry and they're going to leave their job, you know, keeping the nuclear power station. They're going to go somewhere where there's food. So, so it's just it's so. How do you deal with the emotional consequences of the news that you hear about every day 
by just simply yeah. watching Facebook. Yeah, that's true. But um, we have a Dwayne Arnold Energy root beer plant in Halo, which is next to Cedar Rapids. And it's being decommissioned and shut down next year. Oh, that's good news. And and the reason? Solar and wind is cheaper. <laughs> they can't sell the, they can't sell their energy. <laughs> Nuclear power has never been cheaper. It turns out that there's been subsidies and tons of governmental money that yeah. whopping into the uh, into the industry. There there this there is no separation of atoms for peace and military uranium. They're all the same. All of these nuclear yeah. power plants are part of the DOD, and this is all part of a larger control of nuclear fuel worldwide system. The infrastructure for nuclear yeah. power is, is, is really amazingly large and expensive. And uh, yeah. so the, it, never, yeah. it never has actually been that cheap. And if you took the goal, if you took the uh, the actual costs of decommissioning, and the actual costs of, of creating the uranium and in, in, in enriching, it's ridiculously expensive. And it just makes sense. Yeah, it's too expensive. It makes sense. You don't have to too think expensive. it through too far. You just go, wait a minute, what are they doing? How's this technology? And this is cheaper than boiling some water with oil? No right. way. It's not going to happen. It's just not right. going to happen. But uh, the idea of having I get a... my... Go ahead. I'm on uh, Rural Electric right now and um, in Cedar Rapids. And um, uh, REC and Lion Energy uh, are the power companies here. And we, we are getting 60% of our electricity now from solar and wind. Wow. And they're not buying, they're not buying um, the, the the power from the nuclear power plant. Um, it's too expensive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're even even after you've got one up and running and everything else, um, um, it's still too expensive to run. So. Um, so I think nuclear power is on its way out just by its own weight. Well, the weight of nuclear and power so, is what's left over when you shut these things down. There's a good documentary on uh, Netflix about the uh, UN had hired the number one person in the entire planet to search for a, a nuclear waste disposal site, and the documentary does nothing, yeah. but, does nothing but follow this man around as he's looking at various nuclear disposal sites. I wish I knew the name of the documentary, and I apologize to my listeners that I don't. Right. I'll post it. But it, the, the punchline is is that following around the UN-elected number one person in the entire planet with a paragraph of accomplishments in their academic uh, curriculum vitae looks at the camera and says, there's no place to put nuclear power waste anywhere. So right. there's, they're going to have they're going to have to put it on a, a rocket and shoot it into the sun. Um, <laughs> it's really, there's no place to put it. There's no no place to put it. No. And, and then they, they're going to have the, all these, um, all these uh, plutonium bars buried in cement. And the expense of just keeping that up and guarding it um, is... is Still going to be large, but um, the it was a big. Well, it sounded like a good idea to start with, but it, um, <laughs> again, this is really out. about projecting out in the future. This this problem with these human brains of saying, I think it was Carl Sagan that was in front of Congress in 1985, but you know, these were some of the more. There's been warnings about CO2 accumulation for decades. Decades and decades, yeah. and uh, keeping track of uh, the historic uh, f Facebook feed. Uh, I remember seeing an a article by uh, in the 50s 
by a researcher for Shell Oil, I believe, it's looking at the camera telling people that CO2 accumulation will eventually kill us. And this is in the 50s. So the thing is, is that the science has been known for a long time. The actual creation of the model that says that CO2 blanket gas will heat up the planet is in existence in, the, I think, 1840s, where the French, uh, a French scientist was publishing articles on the subject. We've known it for a while, but we haven't done anything about it. And we've known about nuclear power, and we haven't done anything about it. In fact, we've known about the proliferation yeah. of weapons and haven't done anything about it. Yeah. We've known about peak oil, and we've known that we're eventually going to run out yeah. of resources. We haven't, we haven't done anything about that. We don't know anything about peak cobalt and uh, peak uh, rare earth elements, which are the underpinning of our entire electronic culture. We're not doing anything about that either. There's a, there's a big, long yeah. series of problems with the human brain in association with decisions like this, but now we're facing yeah. horrific consequences. Horrific. Yeah. And now... Yeah, they, they are horrific. And here we are, we have a chance to tell the population to, to, to use their technology to look in the camera and in the microphone and tell them, wow, we are in deep trouble. We need to do something. And the one of those somethings is the implementation of systems like biochar. One of them is the implementation of uh -huh. alternative wind and energy, but there's a there's a third yeah. there's a third problem, and this is we're going to be the end of our interview is to discuss this issue, and this issue comes from uh, uh, I heard it first from Guy McPherson, and it's the aerosol masking effect, and um, the basic conundrum of the uh, aerosol masking effect is that our coal pollution and other forms of industrial pollution actually cool the planet to some extent. The CO2 yeah. has offset That's that right. cooling, um, but this particulate yeah. matter that we're throwing into the atmosphere, primarily from coal power plants, is cooling us to some extent. Uh -huh. So the research, and some of it is, is contended, I've heard uh, um, uh, Paul um, Beckwith uh, you know, question the numbers that Guy McPherson is talking about, but it appears that if we shut down industrial civilization where there's no longer any uh, aerosols being produced and thrown into the atmosphere from primarily coal-powered plants, if we stop that tomorrow, there's going to be a worldwide mm -hmm. temperature increase somewhere between about a quarter of a degree and five degrees, depending on who you listen to. What do we need to do about yeah. this situation, Harold? What's your, what's your feeling on this? Well, you got a faulty dilemma. <laughs> Both a faulty dilemma is you got two choices. They're both bad, <laughs> and uh, and so um, the um, uh, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I think um, the aerosol thing is when when the nine eleven happened. They shut down all the airplanes. Um, the temperature rose a point and a half, a degree and a half. Wow! And um, and that that's when they discovered, hey, <laughs> we got a problem with uh, these. Uh, you, we can't really shut down these aerosols. Um, but then we, we can't. Um, we have to shut down what's producing the aerosols. So it's a real faulty dilemma. We're going to have to we're going to have to uh, balance that one out somehow. And uh, I don't have any solutions for that other than we 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 got to get rid of uh, uh, the pollutants, um, keep it under control at least, um, uh, some kind of a balance um, between the two. And uh, because if, if we just keep producing more and more methane, the temperature is going to arise also. So we have to shut down these uh, things that are producing um, the uh, methane. But here again, biochar could help a lot with this. We could be reducing the amount of, of, uh, of um, 
methane and carbon dioxide just by the use of uh, uh, biochar. Um, the other, there's one other uh, solution, and um, that is to increase hydroxyls in the atmosphere. There are, there's a layer of hydroxyl right above the troposphere and below the stratosphere. And if it wasn't for this layer, we wouldn't be able to see across the room. And it's nature's air cleaner, hydroxyls. What they do is um, um, met, um, moisture hitting, uh, no, ultraviolet light hitting moisture creates an OH radical. Um, it is unstable, and when it's in the atmosphere, it uh, steals electrons from other um, molecules, and one of them is methane. It's very effective in getting rid of methane, and uh, um, it takes um, rocks also, um, volcanic organic uh, compounds out of the atmosphere, and uh, these hydroxyls are nature's air cleaner, and we need to increase powering off. Powering on. Ready to pair. Paired. So, um, um, I think <coughs> hydroxyls are a part of our problem. Our, our solution. Thanks, and, uh, Howard. I, I, I really so, I really see that you that you understand the problem, and you have voiced this frustration like all of us in the climate change community of seeking solutions that are meaningful and productive. It's been so good talking to you, uh, uh, Howard. We've had uh, just a wonderful conversation. I hope that you and your family have an opportunity to listen to this podcast, and uh, if you'd like to say anything to them. And now, before we sign off, you're more than welcome to. Yeah. Um, this is your grandpa talking. <laughs> and um, pay attention. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm a graduate of Sam Houston in Huntsville, Texas, and the mascot is a bear cat. Ah. So I tell, I tell my grandkids I'm a bear cat. <laughs> well, you're showing the world what a bear cat can do when given the right information. You have been listening and yeah. following the climate change communities lockstep with me through these years. Do you remember five, six years ago when we thought that we had 20 years? Do you remember that? We were five or six years ago. We go, oh, yeah. oh we got 20 or 30 years. Right. We need to do something. And then Four years ago, oh, we got about we got about fifteen years. We need to do something. Three years and five yeah. years, and now you know, we're sitting here going, "Oh, geez, how many how many months do we have?" I mean, just it's yeah. a, it's a hundred. It was one hundred and thirteen degrees in Florida yesterday with a humidity level that was striking, yeah. and um, the, yeah. this the wet bulb temperature issue and trying to survive. I I do handyman work, and uh, this is. This is just no way to make a living sitting out in 113 degree weather trying to trying to do anything, but no, <laughs> you just can't live in that. But we can sit here and talk on oh. the we can sit here and talk uh, you know uh, on the uh, Facebook though, which is a lot a lot nicer. Harold, thank you again for your time and effort and energies. I look forward to having you on the uh, show and sometime in the future. Please listen to some of my episodes. I'm on Spotify and I'm the Climate Buddha on Facebook. And I'm also on Patreon, and I have a Patreon account trying to offset the costs of the production and the, and the efforts of my climate boot effort. I'm also chuchi at yahoo.com on PayPal. If you want to send me some PayPal money, I'd really appreciate it for your efforts and energies. My listeners are much appreciated. Harold, do you have any uh, income resource that you use to maintain your efforts and energies in the climate change community? Because now would be the time to, to chime in on that. Yeah. Well... The, uh, um, oh, there's there's a lot of them, but uh, the, um, the biomass um, research center down in Iowa State would would uh, be a very good uh, investment in 
uh, in a con- for a contribution. Um, they're doing the research that's going to help us climb out of this if we can. Outstanding. Thanks so much, Harold. I'll put that in thing. I'd like to sign off. My name is Matthew Chute, the Climate Buddha. Harold, I'm going to push a button over here on my computer that shuts down the broadcast, but we can talk.